from Kirkco Media. As we wrap up our Johns Hopkins series, showcasing amazing expertise and innovation from one of the top hospitals in the country, we wanted to devote an episode to really digging into some of the most significant revelations that were shared with us by these world-class practitioners. You'll see why these are our featured moments as we relive the groundbreaking and passionate practice of one of the nation's very best in research hospitals. So join me on this special medicine we're still practicing. I'm Bill Curtis. Johns Hopkins may be known for its outstanding research and development in all facets of care, but what stood out for us is their equal commitment toward streamlining the full recovery process as well as their compassion for the whole patient. This attention to the patient is best exemplified by a unique and industry-changing style of care in the ICU. Dr. Dale Needham shared his groundbreaking research in regard to keeping patients awake while in the intensive care unit. Now, I know such a scary environment like an ICU may be the last place where patients want to be awake and lucid. But here, Dr. Needham shares why keeping patients coherent and engaged is actually best practice for the healthcare industry going forward. Most patients don't know how critical care is delivered. So most patients, we don't need to have discussions with them around this other than when we're not giving them deep sedation and they're awake and alert and can interact with us, we can directly ask them if they're anxious, if they're in pain, and give just the right amount of medication to take away any discomfort and allow them to be awake. And in fact, when we most often ask patients, you know, are you uncomfortable? Would you like some additional medications? When patients are not delirious, most often they tell us, no, I do not want your medications that give me confused thinking. Let's give a little bit of pain medication. Let's be up and moving so my back doesn't hurt laying in bed. Let's turn on TV. Let's engage with family either in person or through video conference. Let's do some things that help distract them. We're also very fortunate that we have Dr. Megan Hosey, a rehabilitation psychologist, who will address issues of anxiety through talking to patients rather than trying to give them powerful sedatives that cause confused thinking, delirium, and long-term cognitive impairments. So did you have a difficult time in the transition? Having been in the ICU, now I'm in my 29th year. There is a culture, at least in our main intensive care unit, the culture has always been patient comfort is paramount concern. And the I think the reflex amongst the nursing staff has always been because of the old adage to sedate is really compassionate. Did you have the same impediment that we've been trying to overcome in changing the culture of from sedation to awakening? Absolutely. Most people who practice in the intensive care unit, telling them that our patients should be awake and moving is like telling them the earth is flat. This is completely different than everything that most of us learned when we were in our training and most of us have seen. However, 
if we go back to the early days of critical care, when intensive care units were first being created, patients were routinely awake and moving at that early stage. But then the pendulum swung, just as you said, with people thinking that sedation was going to make patients feel better. But when we began to think that, we didn't understand this concept of delirium. And we didn't realize that giving patients these powerful sedatives also directly causes this confused thinking. And during this confused thinking, patients aren't calm, peaceful, in an amnestic state like in the operating room. These patients are having horrible nightmares and delirium feeling like somebody's trying to harm them, that there's blood coming out of the walls, that there's rats on the floor, that their dead baby is laying next to them in bed. These are all actual memories that patients have had during their delirium. So there's nothing about that that's calm and peaceful. And the biggest modifiable risk factor for delirium is our heavy use of sedatives that must change in ICUs in order to provide compassionate care to our patients. These memories that I've talked about can last for months or years and are typically the same kind of memories that patients flash back to when they have post-traumatic stress disorder after the ICU that affects approximately one in four patients that have been in an ICU. As you may have heard Dr. Needham mention, There is another special tool in his belt for delivering exceptional care to ICU patients, and that's his rehabilitation psychologist, Dr. Megan Hosey. Dr. Hosey is the kind of practitioner that you hope you never need. But if you or your loved ones find yourselves in the uncomfortable situation of being an ICU patient, you could experience side effects that cause delirium, nightmares, or even worse. Under those circumstances, Dr. Hosey is the exact person you want by your side to prevent or treat the psychological side of an ICU stay. Dr. Hosey's position is a rarity in hospitals these days, but as you're about to hear, the work she does on a day-to-day basis is absolutely vital when it comes to excellence in compassionate intensive care. So anytime we're walking in for these patients in this bizarre PPE, we've been finding that a really important tweak is to remind people what it is along with the general reorientation that we're doing. So for example, we'll tell people where they are, why they're there, and we'll say, I'm wearing these masks and that's to protect us from infection, for example, because patients having hallucinations and delusions won't really understand what that is. Aside from introducing yourself, any other techniques that can give you leverage on a patient who might be half in and half out of reality to help ease their mind and their psyche? I think the main thing that we spend time telling patients is you're at Johns Hopkins. And in the context of conversation, we might say, and now that it's noon at Johns Hopkins, we'll do X and Y and Z. For example, if the nurse is bathing or providing a medication, they'll remind them what they're about to do. They will briefly mention that they're breathing with the help of events because often patients aren't, don't really have a sense of what's happening with that. And then finally, a really important one in the wake of COVID is reminding people that their loved ones may not be in the hospital because of the visitor restrictions and letting them know, hopefully, that all of their loved ones are safe. A common delusion for patients is for them to think that something really terrible has happened to a loved one. You know, I've been in practice for 29 years, and I've not seen your position in any hospital I've worked at, and I've worked at several over the years. 
naturally what happens in the academic centers, it takes takes time to filter down to the community and ultimately it should because that's the whole point. And so right now we're in the process of trying to minimize delirium by keeping our patients awake at all times and minimizing sedation. But what we don't have is you, the resource from the psychological support. And so that's something that's being taken care of as best we can by nurses and physicians. So what advice do you have to us who are, we are in this watershed area where we're trying to keep our patients awake, but then how are we going to give them the same kind of support that you're giving when we really don't have those resources? I think that right now, my perception is that we're in a space where we don't give the nurses and docs a whole lot of time to be doing this extra emotional support. So that's a big shift. Just from a basic psychological and behavioral perspective, whenever we ask a person to change their behavior, to stop doing something, we have to give them something else to be able to do instead, right? And so I think ABCDEF model is one of the most common things that we rely on. So involving family, perhaps including things like Zoom and allowing the family to be a part of the patient's care whenever possible. Again, that providing really basic reorientation for patients who are delirious, ensuring that the environment is conducive as it can be to keeping people alert and awake. So that means the setting matches the time of day. So if it's morning, we have shades open. If it's evening, we're quiet and really promoting sleep. I think that that also means just a mindset that says this person might be having one of the very worst days of their life. And so when they're awake, alert, and potentially not fully engaging with us or sort of what we would say like refusing or being non-adherent, sort of thinking through with the patients about why that might be and sort of eliciting some ways that we can change that if the patient's not delirious. Rounding out our trio of experts related to Johns Hopkins ICU care is speech-language pathologist Dr. Martin Brodsky. He is a leader in establishing communication with patients, which is absolutely integral to their care in the ICU. A speech-language pathologist in an ICU setting is far from common, but Johns Hopkins and Dr. Brodsky are paving the way when it comes to dealing with swallowing and vocal challenges caused by time spent on a respirator. He is also innovating new and successful methods for dealing with communication difficulties during treatment. I asked Dr. Brodsky how he performs the difficult task of communicating effectively with delirious patients. So the reality here is, yes, once the patient is able to be interactive, we are able to work with the patient. And whether it's writing, and writing has its own difficulties because of ICU-acquired weakness, perhaps the patient's even restrained with soft restraints to keep from pulling at the lines, the tubes, the drains, and so forth. So you have the added obstacle, if you will, of even if the patient is strong enough to be able to put a marker in their hand with a whiteboard, it's lifting their arm off the bed to be able to write on the whiteboard, which is another issue. But how is that going to help patients ultimately speak better or swallow better once they've been liberated from the ventilator? So in the first place, working with people to get them communicating gets them more involved in their own patient care. That's a big issue for patients. We've known that for some time. And getting a speech-language pathologist to maximize that communication, and whether it's a letter board, maybe it's a basic communication board that says, I need to go to the bathroom, my back itches, my arm is in pain, whatever it might be. 
is a lot more than even trying to read their lips. There's eye gaze that you can use for the simple yes and no questions. There are technology that's available to track their eyes and to be able to communicate in much the way that you saw in the past Stephen Hawking do it. Now, he had a more advanced communication board, but you can see that there really is a continuum there that we're able to meet the patient's needs and meet the communication needs where you have the communication even with the nurse or the physicians or the therapists that walk into the room and the patient has a question or needs to tell you how they're feeling. Now, moving away from the ICU, we had the pleasure of having a discussion with sleep expert, Dr. Christopher Early. Yes, we did chat about some rather interesting aspects of sleep hygiene and the state of the art with sleep medicine. Go out and check out the whole episode if you haven't yet. It's really valuable stuff. But what's even more unique about Dr. Early is his interest and expertise in RLS, restless leg syndrome. You may have heard about this ailment in an endless run of commercials recently. However, before this discussion, I really didn't get it. It sounded like it could be a rather minor inconvenience. But Dr. Early shared with us the actual challenges this difficult disease can present and how he and his colleagues set out to solve the RLS puzzle. Well, essentially, it's about three to four times more common in women than in men. It basically increases in prevalence over the age group, coming to a plateau at about 50 to 60 years of age, but there's a progressive increase through childhood, adolescence, and up through the younger adult ages. Most of our research for the last 30 years has been trying to understand the pathophysiology of this disease, and what we know is that there is an association on what we believe is part of the primary pathology is that the brains of patients with restless leg syndrome have lower levels of iron in certain regions of the brain. So it's a brain iron insufficient state, despite the fact that their blood levels of iron are normal. So it's a very organ-specific phenomenon. And this iron insufficiency leads to a couple changes in your brain, one of which is an alteration in this chemical called dopamine. By altering, it doesn't specifically decrease the overall amount of dopamine. It basically changes this circadian change in dopamine. So dopamine levels are high in the morning and low at night. And it seems to make that nadir, the lower point at night, lower or decreased. So it's that you start having symptoms. So it's that lower level of dopamine at night that triggers the oral symptoms. And therefore, some of the first treatments that we had available was the use of some of the agents commonly used in Parkinson's disease, Cinemet, Mirapex, Requip, the dopamine agonists. The symptoms are somewhat different in the younger age group, particularly men whose symptoms start before the age of 35 have a very vicious form of disease. I mean, it will come on, basically affect their whole life within a year or two. I mean, it will not just happen at night, it'll be during the evening, and eventually they'll have it 24-7. In women at a younger age, under 40, it tends starts to be an intermittent set of symptoms, coming and going, coming and going, but becoming a nightly problem by the time they reach somewhere between 40 and 50. I can't convey in simple words the experience is beyond anything any of us can imagine unless you actually have had the disease. And I can tell you, you become so, so desperate to get rid of the sensation. And obviously, if you're during the day, you can walk. That's fine. But you can't walk and sleep at the same time. And so when you've missed night after night for years on end, you will do what you need to do. 
And some people have resorted to the use of figure it out. If I drink this, you know, half this fifth of whiskey straight down, I can get some sleep. How are you affecting treatment here? So one of the outcomes of that research I talked about was to see if I raised your body iron stores, whether a certain percentage of that could get over into the brain. Uh, Your brain probably only constitutes about 0.5% of your total body iron stores. Uh, But if I increase the total amount, even though that fraction may not change, the amount obviously would. We started with some simple studies, mostly open-ended designs, demonstrating the value of iron, initially oral iron, then we went to intravenous iron. And there's been several, essentially three randomized placebo-controlled trials of intravenous iron in patients who were not anemic, who did not necessarily have an iron deficiency, and demonstrated that you can get about 45% of patients who are going to demonstrate a much or greater improvement in symptoms with intravenous iron. And so that's one of the things I think as was an outcome of all of our basic research, that we can improve symptoms. We also had an opportunity to chat with the calming and eloquent Dr. Pienta about his work as a renowned Johns Hopkins oncologist. He's specializing in prostate cancer. Now, of course, all cancer is scary. You never want to hear your family doc mention the C word. But prostate cancer is specifically one of those unique varieties that needs every man's attention starting at about 50 years of age. You've heard the saying that most men die with prostate cancer, but not from it. And though it may be true, it doesn't make it any less serious than other cancers. Dr. Pienta shared with us some sobering facts about the disease, but also some very helpful advice in navigating it pre- or post-diagnosis. We're living in a pretty high-tech era. We've come a long way in medicine, but still, so many men die of prostate cancer. What are we messing up here, and what do we have to do to fix this? So, you know, in this time of COVID and so many people dying of COVID, you know, it's an infectious disease. We've got to do better. And we tend to forget about these other illnesses that are plaguing the planet. You know, if you look around the world, 10 million people a year are dying of cancer. In the U.S., 600,000 people are dying of cancer. 30,000 men die of prostate cancer every year. And cancer of all kinds, including prostate cancer, is curable if you find it in time because we can do surgery or radiation and cure you. But unfortunately, in about 50,000 men per year, we find the cancer too late. We find the cancer after it has escaped the prostate. And metastatic cancer, virtually of all kinds, is incurable. And prostate cancer, unfortunately, metastasizes or spreads to the bones as really its first site. And it causes a lot of problems for guys in the bones, including pain, and eventually kills them. And we can talk about how that happens. But essentially, we fail because we don't cure people because we don't find the cancer in time. What are the signs that men should look for, which means perhaps they should come see you or someone you recommend? Yeah, so that's the problem. There are no signs. There are no signs until it's too late. And that's why we recommend and all the the major medical associations recommend that starting at age 50, you should at least have a discussion with your caregiver about whether you want to get screened. The screening consists of a prostate-specific blood test, a PSA blood test, 
as well as a digital rectal exam. And you should have that yearly, starting at age 50. If you're African-American or have a positive family history, you should start that at age 45 or even 40. Why is that controversial? It's controversial because before we were smarter about active surveillance, we were probably over-treating men with that low-grade kind of cancer. But the whole way we treat prostate cancer has really evolved a lot over the last few years. Do you use proton therapy with urological issues like this, or do you kind of go right to, you don't really need your prostate, it's better off if it comes out? Prostate cancer that is localized to the prostate can be cured in two ways. One is surgery to remove the prostate. The other is some form of radiation therapy that certainly involves external beam radiation therapy, which means that the photons are generated outside the body and shot into the prostate area. Or, you know, there's still some cases where we use seed implants as well as external beam radiation therapy. When you take external beam radiation, you can break it down into photon external beam radiation therapy and proton external beam radiation therapy. And proton machines were originally designed because they can be very accurate in treating the planning and hitting their what they're supposed to hit. And not doing too much other damage. Right, and sparing normal tissue. And actually, the first use of protons were for like kids with spinal tumors, where you really had to protect that spinal cord. To be honest, protons work great for prostate cancer, but they don't work better because we have something called computed tomography, plant conformal 3D planning, which basically means we use a CT scan in multiple parameters to draw lines around the prostate, treat just that. And so protons are just as good, but not better for prostate. So guys who want to get radiation rather than surgery, they have a choice between photons and protons. And quite frankly, it doesn't matter. And finally... In probably the most emotional moment of all our Johns Hopkins recordings, with tears in her eyes, Dr. Megan Hosey shared with us the impact COVID has had on her as a frontline healthcare worker. We've all lived through a year of fighting this novel and terrible virus. I hope we stop for a moment and focus on the absolute heroism that healthcare workers like Megan exhibited in all our hospitals all over the world. But in this once-in-a-lifetime horror that was our year of pandemic, there has been some good that rose from the ashes. That might just be the realization that life is delicate, brief, and something to be cherished, along with healthy friends and loved ones, or even the simple appreciation of the small things in life, like a wall of fully stocked toilet paper at the grocery store, which I'll never take for granted again. We believe that we've all emerged from this pandemic smarter and stronger than when we went in. And we have many of the folks in this series, along with, of course, my best friend and host, Dr. Stephen Tabak, to thank for that. And they are the special angels we will always be grateful for. Dr. Hosey, how has this changed your life and, and your perspective on practice And are you suffering, do you feel any PTSD from what you've been through for the past year? I've never seen anything like this ever. (laughs) And I think the way that it's changed my life is I feel very grateful for the medical system that I work in. 
I'm very inspired by all of the practitioners that I get to work with. I mean, people who in the early days said, I might be negatively affected by this, but I'm going to put on my PPE and I'm going to do the best I can anyway. That's very inspiring. I think the way that it changes my practice in that it deepens some of the things that we already knew, how vulnerable it can feel to be in the hospital, how somebody's prognosis or trajectory can change in a day in either direction. I think these are things we knew already, but have seen so much more of it now. I think your, your final question was about PTSD. I mean, I would say in May and June, I was having some irritability and I was having some dreams about my patients and their families. And I think the things that made it easiest to cope with were my colleagues. So I have a bunch of psychologist colleagues. I have Dale Needham and Marty Brodsky, who you've had the opportunity to talk to already. So, and all of the colleagues in the MICU. So having that contingent of people made it really okay to like unpack, knowing that there were other people who sort of understood what was happening and and be able to talk to them about it made it better. What made it harder at that time, though I think all of this is getting easier, what made it harder at that time was to go to work and see the things we were seeing and hear the things we were hearing and then have loved ones or family members kind of say, well, is it really that big a deal? Is this really as hard as everyone says it is? But I think that there was some real scary early days, but I think I'm okay now. And people like Dr. Tabak know how to treat this so much better than we did in the beginning. At least here at Hopkins, we now have a funnel of support to, to pass our patients along to our post-acute COVID team, can catch patients on the other side, which makes us feel a little bit more confident about their recoveries. And I think that, again, the biggest way that this changes my practice is to just have that much more empathy for what our patients and our providers go through together. And so I'm, I'm really hoping that once we can get through some of the severity of this and have more of it behind us, I really do think that as a system, we'll be able to look back and not just think about what any to change, but how proud we are of how we stepped up and saved a lot of people. And thank you for joining us on a tour through this special series. And a special thank you to Johns Hopkins for allowing us to pick your brains here on Medicine We're Still Practicing. If you know a doctor or a healthcare worker that would benefit from listening to this series, please send them a link. And if you would, rate this podcast. It helps us so much. This episode was produced and edited for Kurt Comedia by A.J. Mosley. Mastering by Steve Rickyberg. Music by Celeste and Eric Dick. Stay safe, everyone. Doctor, doctor. From Kurt Media. Media for your mind.